0: i'll ask you to turn in your bibles to jeremiah the old testament book jeremiah chapter 31 i'll start reading at verse 23 and we'll go to the end of the chapter This is the word of God. Let us give careful attention to its reading. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Goreb, And shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields, as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord, we look at ancient words, but we come to the God who is from everlasting to everlasting and who only speaks truth and never lies. Give us grace, we pray, even this moment, these minutes in front of us, to understand the glorious truths that are here Especially for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an illustration uh, from an older movie, the 1983 film Tender Mercies. It won some Academy Awards, and Robert Duvall was one of the key players in, in the movie. He's a once famous but now washed up country music singer songwriter named Mac Sledge. He's, got, he's stringing together just some dead end jobs, trying to keep, keep things together, battling whiskey. And there's a young widow named Rosalie, and she has a little boy, Sonny. And Sonny befriends Mac. And so, as the movie is drawing toward the end, Mac and the boy get baptized at the local church and they're driving home in mac's pickup truck you can picture i think i've forgotten if it was in the state of louisiana or mississippi somewhere down there but you can picture one of those old beat-up pickup trucks and sonny's the little boy there and mac's behind the wheel of course and sonny says well we've done it mac we're baptized mac says yeah we are and sonny says Everybody said I was going to feel like a changed person. I guess I do feel a little different, but I don't feel a whole lot different. Do you, Mac? Not yet. Sonny says you don't look any different, and he kind of looks over at himself and uh, pulls down the visor of the mirror and says, "Do you think I look any different?" Mac says, "Not yet." And that kind of introduces us, and I drew that illustration from a book that I'm profiting from. We are starting tonight a series on union with Christ, this most central, important doctrine, teaching that has enormous practical implications, largely brought out in the New Testament and the book that this came from that is being very helpful to me is the book entitled Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. And he starts this way because I think he's right. I think he recognizes that most of us, he, in Wilborn's terminology now, he says most of us fill a gap in our Christian life. You know, we we go through the day. Maybe it's going to hit you on Tuesday morning, maybe Thursday afternoon, something like that. And, uh, you know, you feel just kind of deflated or kind of like sunny here. You know, I don't look that different. I don't feel that different. I'm not sure I'm, I'm changing that much. What is this gap between I read the scriptures, I hear these things taught from the pulpit, uh, I believe him, but I, I don't seem to live to uh, t- to to where they they point us to. Rankin Wilburn speaks about how it, it went on in his life for some years. He was in sales before he. He studied and is now a preacher in in California, and he would speak about how preachers would say you can rest or you're accepted in the Lord, your identity's there, and then then he said he went to the corporate bank where he worked, and the race was far from over. He says, I was falling behind, and each month the company would post a list of everyone's performance how much money we had earned, and all of that. And he says, No matter what the preacher said, my value was here, it was by another measure in black and white posted on the wall for all to see. And he struggled for some time with this. And I think we all do. Well, that's what we're going to be addressing. And the. The doctrine of union with Christ, I believe, can address that. And as I was beginning thinking about, so what would be an introductory sermon? I thought, well, tonight we also have the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord Jesus. We're talking about the scripture's revelation of this truth, union with Christ. And you'll keep in mind, in just minutes, I'm going to stand behind that table and what will be a portion of what I say? I will say, this cup is the what? Is the new covenant in my blood. And so I thought to myself, let's look at an Old Testament foundational text about what I believe is union with Christ. And so that's where we are. That's why I read from this, because the you know what I just said. It's mentioned in the New Testament. Matter of fact, that's how we get the word New Testament. Uh, it's this new covenant. It's mentioned in Hebrews when uh, Elder Wilson read that. Uh, he There's a reference there. Paul will refer to it. Luke is the only one of the synoptic, synoptic gospels that has our Lord at the Last Supper saying new covenant. And, and so the terminology is not tremendously numerous. In the Old Testament, this text we read is the only text in which the terminology is used. Now, there are other references to it, but that's why I picked that. That's why we are here. And so, I'm going to be using some C words. C is in Charlie or Cecilia. Um, And so, Let's, what we just covered was the first point, the conflict, the gap. And so now let's look, secondly, at the context, the context of our Jeremiah prophecy. And I think we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I think it's very helpful. Jeremiah had a long term of prophesying uh, in, in uh, Judah. He started prophesying, according to the dates in his book, around 626 B.C. under Josiah's reforms. Josiah was one of the good kings, and there were certain reforms in the temple and in the society that were there. All right, so he starts then, but he will continue prophesying the last historic event that we have some sense of measuring the date of in his book is around 562 to 560. So it's, so somewhere around about a 60-year period of ministry there. All right, so now in 626, like I said, Josiah is a good king working for reform. But a key thing to note And remember is that in the year 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, comes and utterly destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And so a good bit of Jeremiah's book, matter of fact, essentially everything from uh, chapters 1 through 29 are largely judgmental. On the people of judah and jerusalem because they are they are being unfaithful they are not walking with the lord they are turning their back on him and what we are in the midst of in his book uh, is from chapters 30 to 33 it's often called among the scholars the book of consolation right in the middle of of the jeremiah you have this section in which his, the whole tenor and tone of it changes. You can start from, um, depending on what Bible you have, if you turned back a page or two to the start of Jeremiah chapter 30. Matter of fact, mine has the title, the study note, Restoration for Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord God, write in a book, I will restore the fortunes, and so right then you get that. And in the in the heart of this section is this prophecy of the new covenant, and so you want to want to keep in mind. And by the way, he will then have prophecies against the nations and some other uh, condemning prophecies against the people. So right, kind of in the center of the book, the way it's structured is this message of hope. And you can picture, uh, you can picture, Jer- uh, we don't know exactly the date of some of these prophecies. What may well have happened is Jeremiah is prophesying. You got to change. You got to repent. You're going to be destroyed if you don't repent. He's giving that traditional, prophetic, right pro- message to the people. And lo and behold, it happens. 586, Jerusalem is surrounded and the devastation is enormous. Well, afterwards, Jeremiah actually gets taken to Egypt and, and such, but there's a time period where he's uh, also able to prophesy to the exiles and he, he's a writing prophet. And so it could be after the fact. In other words, what these people are scattered they're defeated they're destroyed they're taken to babylon some have escaped in the mountains etc what's the message in a crazy sort of way perhaps in babylon they get the message what is this about a return what is this about a restored city after what we've witnessed and so that's something of the context okay so third thing uh, now we 've looked at what we 're calling the current day the the conflict we often experience uh, this conflict, the gap in how we live and think on a daily life and what we hear in the scriptures we 've looked at the context of this new covenant, and now thirdly, just just very quickly I just it 's covenant a definition. The Catechism for young children teaches that a covenant is their simpler answer is an agreement between two or more persons. And that's accurate. It's good. Um, Often it is compared to a contract, a treaty. Sometimes you see that in the scriptures, treaty between uh, nations and such, an alliance. One of my Old Testament professors has a book, The Christ of the Covenants. I think several of you who have pursued some form of education in kind of a seminary vein, um, Palmer Robertson defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. He's speaking especially about God's covenants, that God swears, uh, you might say, in a a serious way there's going to be a shedding of blood in the breaking of a covenant. Um, and it's sovereignly administered. He comes and initiates, and he sets the standards for it. Um, Philip Ryken says a biblical covenant is a binding relationship, and he brings out the fact that it's of eternal consequence. In other words, the divine covenants speak of an eternal consequence in which God promises to bless and his people promise to obey. One of the wonderful things about covenants, the fact that God has revealed himself, and you're an intelligent group, you know about um, the covenant with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David and the new covenant and and things like that. One of the wonderful things about God uh, revealing uh, covenants to his people is that it teaches us that he is willing to tell us what he's going to do, what he promises to do. He's willing, you might say, to, to pull his omnipotence within certain channels so that we know how he will be working. Uh, and, and the fact is, he hasn't left us in ignorance. Through the Scriptures. Through revelation, He's told us these things. And one of the other positive things that comes from knowing that God works by covenant is since He has revealed Himself in this way and revealed Himself in the Scriptures, we have a way of resting in His Word, to rest secure, knowing that He is faithful. He's told us. I'm going to do this. I'm going to act this way. And we can say, oh, this is, this is good news. The only God there is has entered into a covenant saying he will act a certain way and he never lies. Well, that brings us now, we want to come to technically this would be point four I'm calling it commitments these are the commitments that God makes in the covenant that we have just read it is there and don't don't panic there are seven of them all right and now now I'm going to give you words that start with R just to kind of keep it all together in my own mind okay but this is wonderful stuff. This is, let me see if I can prove that it's wonderful stuff, okay? So let's look. God has just said, I am going to make a new covenant. And the first thing we know, now I'm in the text that we read, in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31, he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah that in itself is a promise. He says, I'm going to do it. And what is the nature of that promise? This specific promise is one of reconciliation because what was true in the context, what was true is that Israel had already been dispersed in 722 over a hundred years. Matter of fact, close well about 150 years from 586, when Judah and Jerusalem fall, Israel is already dispersed by the Assyrians. Who knows where they all are? And so already, this is this is a mammoth statement from God. I'm going to bring the two together. We don't even know where half the ten tribes are, but I know where they are, and I'm going to bring them together, and they're not going to fight among themselves anymore. There will not be a divided kingdom anymore. And so in this new covenant, there is a promise of reconciliation, a promise to end the division and hostility in this specific case between Israel and Judah. But surely what we're going, you know already, we're going to see this fulfilled in Christ. And isn't that precisely what the church is supposed to be? Just one text of many, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one. Listen for it. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What did we say the series was going to be about? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. And so here it comes. There's reconciliation. The second promise that is here. I'm using the word regeneration here, and it is in verse, the first part of verse 33. You read on, He's, he makes a statement in 32 that this new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant, and there was not so much the problem with the old covenant. The blame is clearly stated that, uh, that he had taken them by the hand, but they would not obey. They broke it. Uh, Though I was a husband, which tells you something, too, about the nature of covenants and how God views entering into covenants with people, like a marriage covenant. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I, here it comes, regeneration, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is a promise of what God will do for everyone in this new covenant. We have a promise here of transformation of God's people from the inside out. The problem, one of the problems with the Mosaic economy and covenant was the law was there. It was written in tablets of stone. The only thing Jeremiah says was written on the hearts of the people back then was their sin. And we know in Jeremiah seventeen nine. there's that classic statement, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? But Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. 2 Corinthians 3 is his chapter-long contrast between the mosaic economy and the new covenant and he says concerning himself we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us but our sufficiency is from god who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the spirit kills but the spirit Excuse me, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is a promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a promise, you see, of ability. This is why we, I had uh, Elder Wilson read from Hebrews 10. Do you remember what it said? Uh, Hebrews 10 15 through 16. It said, This is, uh, says, the Holy Spirit. Author of Hebrews says, The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's linking this, the word here and the actions here of the Holy Spirit. For the Christian, obedience to the law Praise God, is not a prior condition for entering the new covenant. It's not on your obedience that you get into the new covenant. Rather, it's one of the promised blessings of the new covenant. Do you feel the gap in your life being addressed? There's ability. The spirit, an understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so reconciliation, regeneration. Third, relationship. This is the second half of verse 33. Jeremiah writes, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God's people, you and I, You and I, if we're here tonight as believers, have a claim on the God of heaven and earth. And he has a claim on us. We will belong to him and it's not blasphemous for us to say he belongs to us. He belongs to us. It's a promise of a mutual love relationship. This chapter, Jeremiah 31, started with the opening three verses. Uh, It says, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. And you come to verse 3, Jeremiah 31, 3, and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's what is being talked about there in this relationship. Whenever God makes a covenant with his people, what he's really giving them is not stuff, but he's giving them himself. Once again, now, do you feel the gap in your life having some hope of closing? I will be your God and you will be mine. All right, so now. Revelation of true knowledge. Revelation of true knowledge is promised here. Verse 34, A, the very first part of 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. To know here uh, is, is in being committed to the Lord is to be committed to him in love and loyalty and obedience, to reflect the character of God in our human relationships as well as in in our private faith and worship. Jeremiah has a tremendous statement showing how this is a very much an ethical, moral statement that God is promising. Get the, get the sense. These are promises of God to the least, to the greatest that are included in the new covenant. They're not going to need to have this. They're going to have the law written on their hearts. They're going to be regenerated. They're going to be in relationship with me. They're going to be united to one another, and it's going to be lived out in an ethical kind of way. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, the Lord says this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, All right, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And implied distinctly in that is if I know the Lord, and he is a kind of God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, then I, too, will seek to work, just to make it 21st century, that we will all work to have a church, society, and relationships uh, marked by love, steadfast love, righteousness, and justice. Then there is release from sin. Release from sin. Verse 34b. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I wondered for a while why why this one kind of occurs so far down. We've seen the reconciliation, the... Uh, the regeneration part, the relationship with God, the revelation of true knowledge. Now, number five, we're at this, what we often consider this most fundamental truth. The forgiveness of sins. I will, re- I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And I think one person has summed it up well. This, this blessing really lies at the foundation and the beginning for the flowering of all the other things we've talked about. One person said, divine forgiveness makes possible, his language, inner transformation. What was that? That was the regeneration, the writing of the law on our hearts. Intimacy with God. What was that? I will be their God and they will be my people. An inclusive community that delights in faithful living. In that one quote, in that last statement, he ties together the fact of uniting people in Christ to live as those who know the Lord. This one foundational blessing that is part of the new covenant. All right, two more real quick. Remaining forever. That's the import of verses 35 through 37, where God uses the very uh, creation around us to testify to the fact that if these things change, if the sun rising in the east changes, if if when the sun sets and darkness comes and the moon comes up and all, if those things begin to change, then you can think that God himself will change his promises concerning his people in this new covenant. And if you can measure them, it says in verse 37, then maybe... Then, then if you come to some ability to reach the stars and know their distances and all of those things, then you can maybe begin to think that God would go back on his word. And the last one, I'm calling the renewal of all things. You might say, this is verses 38 through 40, how the chapter ends. And you look at it, and we, I don't want to just reread it, but it's very clear that it is about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Remember in 586, utterly destroyed, temple and all. And so here is a prophecy, and, and you might think, Bill, I, I heard what you said. You said the renewal of all things. How did you get there? Well, I think you've got to think about it this way. Jerusalem was rebuilt. You know that with Zerubbabel and with um, Nehemiah, places like that. But what happened later in 70 AD? Absolutely destroyed again. And so you've got really two choices. We just said remaining forever and renewal of all things. And yet these people, some centuries later, experienced all this again. What might this be looking towards? And I don't think it's far-fetched. I think this is one of those cases where, where there was a close-in fulfillment of this But there is going to be an ultimate fulfillment that certainly is everlasting. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, John writing, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Remember what we said, how God described the first covenant? He said, they broke it, and I was a husband to them. The marriage language used again. A bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Well, what we just say, I will be their God And they shall be my people. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so we get into the other issues of forgiveness of sin because there is nothing unclean in heaven. You get into the issue of reconciliation because everyone in heaven. And so these things, will, they will not only find a fulfillment in the words of our Lord Jesus on, uh, on that night in, in his... Uh, Very soon thereafter, death and resurrection and in what we experience partly. But this surely points to an everlasting new covenant. And John will conclude that section. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. We said this was a covenant, and a covenant made with these mighty promises. Our covenant, this new covenant, has a mediator. And I've already revealed who that is, so our main point five is Christ. There's your C word, Christ the mediator. And it is the author of Hebrews that particularly makes this point out. In Hebrews seven twenty through 22, it is written, it was not without an oath for those who, for, that is, the covenant was not without an oath. For those who formally became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, and, the, and it's really a reference to Melchizedek, the priest from Psalm 110. This one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the author of Hebrews says, the guarantor of a better covenant. Sometimes that is the language he uses. In Hebrews 8, says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. That is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates. The new covenant is better since it is enacted on better promises. What are those promises? They're right here in Jeremiah 31. He is the mediator of this covenant. The author of Hebrews in in 9 will speak about the fact that that, um, everything in uh needs to be purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins guess what the mediator of the new covenant has shed his blood has died has enacted this covenant our larger catechism question 31 says with whom Was the covenant of grace made? And you need to listen carefully. It's an accurate answer. But listen carefully. With whom was the covenant of grace made? You might be tempted to say it was made between God and me. God and all of his people. The answer given is the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second covenant. Adam and listen for it in him union with him the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed our mediator has stood in the gap for us and bought for us Every one of these promises. And so my last very short point is the one word, comfort. You know, after hearing of all these things, these promises and such, we might be tempted to think about ourselves, well, what still needs to be done? Is now the time, Bill, that you're going to talk to us about our tithing, our church positions, our good works, our efforts? No. Did you note that all of the promises of the new covenant, all of the statements of the new covenant are promises? They are things that God himself undertakes. He makes the covenant. He puts his law in our hearts. He will be our God. He forgives our sin. He establishes this covenant forever. He has appointed the mediator of this covenant, and that mediator is triumphant. So what do we do? We believe. We believe with a faith that even in that is a gift to us. Thomas Boston, one of the great covenant theologians from a past day, said this, What remains for sinners? That they may be personally and savingly in covenant with God is not it is not that they are parties, contractors, and undertakers to make a covenant with Him for life and salvation. but here it is here's a statement: but only to take hold of God's covenant already made from eternity between the Father and Christ, the second Adam and revealed and offered to us in the gospel. Is that not good news? The gap in your life and in mine can be closed by greater intimacy with God because he's promised it. By the forgiveness of sins, whatever your sins are, is because he's promised it. Uh, by by better relationships with one another in the church, because he's promised it, he's doing these things. He is on the move. He is affecting his covenant. Let us uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, can it be that utterly outside of ourselves in grace and love and faithfulness, you have set your love upon us, great sinners we know ourselves to be. And yet, through a mighty mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, Even as we are reminded this morning. Named Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. Named Emmanuel because he is God with us. That we are your people in him. Lord, would you please use these upcoming Sunday nights that we might revel, that we might rejoice, that we might be able to better apply the true communion and union we have with you. Fulfill your new covenant in my life, in our lives together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.